And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the Monday edition. Yes, we are back. It's Monday. Have to start a whole new week. But good news is... We're halfway through the month of October, and there's actually some interesting things that are coming up here over the next uh, couple of weeks here for the markets in particular. Um, first of all, Halloween, right around the corner. Everybody's out decorating now. The 12-foot skeleton, apparently the thing. We talked about this last week. Three more popped up in my neighborhood. We now have the attack of the giant skeletons happening in our neighborhood. So. I'm going. I'm, I'm now looking for a 15-foot tall skeleton, <laughs> just to prove a point. Just to make a point. <laughs> but no, Halloween right around the corner now. Interestingly enough, and I was uh, I told this to my daughter this week. I said, "Did you happen to know that Halloween is the second biggest shopping day of the year?" And she's like, "Really? Everybody shops in one day?" I was like, "No, it's leading up to. It's the second biggest holiday of the year. Everybody shops for. Yes. And you know, everybody starts shopping earlier and earlier now for mm -hmm. Halloween. Yeah." And of course, already, if you go to you know Costco or Sam's Club, wherever, Christmas decorations out yeah, everywhere. Yeah. So it's getting a little bit too early. Black Friday started in October. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> it's, it's getting a little bit ridiculous. But a couple of things about that. Um, first of all, you know, we are trying to pull forward some retail sales here because retail sales have been a bit weaker. And of course, with higher inflation, higher prices, that is a concern. For retailers now, starting this week, I said that we have a lot of stuff coming up. Starting the, starting today, we are about to get into earnings season. Now we we had a, a few reports last week, but we really officially kind of kick off earnings season today, and that's going to really ramp up by October the 28th. Now today's the 17th, so 10 days from now, we'll have 70% of the S&P 500 reporting. So it's about to get fast and furious in terms of earnings reports. Um, also, the other, I guess, good piece of news here is that on not, by October the 28th, as we get that far into the S&P 500 reporting period, a large chunk of the blackout for stock buybacks will be gone. So, you know, a lot of this kind of sluggishness we've had in the markets over the last couple of weeks in particular um, is really due to the lack of we have lost one of the major buyers. Uh, most major corporations have been in blackouts uh, in terms of their stock buybacks. Now, once that window reopens, that's going to be about a $4.5 billion daily bid on stocks uh, through the end of the year. So as they start buying back stock to make earnings, et cetera, for the end of the year, um, that's going to, to obviously provide a little bit of a bid underneath stocks. Uh, secondly, also, too, as we move into November and December, um, mutual funds, pension funds, hedge funds, et cetera, all have to start repositioning for the year-end reporting and make sure they've got their cash deployed. And we've got a lot of cash, uh, you know, for portfolio managers, there's a lot of cash on their books. So they've got to get that money put to work um, by the end of the year. So there, there's a couple of, of kind of good things coming up here that could give the markets a, that little bit of lift that it needs temporarily. Now, look, we're not out of the weeds, so to speak, or the danger of lower lows for this market, but likely we're going to have this uh, a bit of a rally here first. So again, just kind of the, the setup is now getting a lot better here for a potential tradable rally here over the next month or two. Um, now, Thursday and Friday, interesting, of course, because Thursday, huge reversal day on Thursday. 
you know, we were down at the open about 2% at the open on Thursday after that hotter than expected inflation report. Then immediately rallied back, finished up almost 3% uh, for the day. We had a 5.5% turn in the market in one single day. Now, Friday, of course, didn't work out so well. Market sold off about 2%. Now, the good news, though, is, is that while we had a lot of volatility last week, markets are just continuing to hold these bottoms that they've been building now really ever since the beginning of this month. So, again, markets haven't done – it's been a lot. It's been all over the place, right? We had a rally in the first two days of October. Then we sold off, set new lows, rallied on Thursday, sold off on Friday to wind up exactly about where we started. So, again, lots of volatility here, certainly just kind of wearing investment. Out. I mean, it's just, you know, people are just like, I'm done. Um, you know, it's just, <laughs> that's kind of just where we are here. But that's also the type of environment that you need here for a, a bit of a rally, kind of that face ripper rally that gets everybody excited. All we need here is for Jim Cramer to start calling a bottom for the market. And that'll, that'll almost ensure you that we've got at least a near-term rally coming for the markets. Um, also, too, once we start do having this rally, again, use that rally to sell into reduce some risk in your portfolio. Again, as we get into the first part of next year, you know, we still have this issue with the Federal Reserve, this lack of liquidity that's in the markets. And of course, they're extracting liquidity from the markets. The bond market starting to fracture here a bit. I've got an article coming up very shortly uh, talking about lack of liquidity in, 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 in the bond market, in particular the treasury market. So there are certainly risks that are going up. But again, as we get into the first part of next year, that's where your real recession risk is. So, and, and what's going to happen here, and you know, this, this is going to sound like a conspiracy theory, but this is just the way it always works. We've got midterm elections in just two weeks. So once we get through midterm elections, a lot of this economic data that we've been looking at that's been better than expected is going to get revised negative. Um, it is just kind of a trend of the markets historically going into midterm elections. There is some political bias. Reports tend to be a little bit better heading into elections, and then they get revised after the election. So again, after midterms, we're likely going to see a lot of these employment reports that have been exceptionally strong, these low unemployment rates likely going to get reversed here. No guarantee of that, but that's kind of what history tells us is going to happen. And again, that's where we'll start seeing probably that risk of that recession really starting to mature heading into the first and second quarter of, of 2023. Earnings estimates are coming down, not down enough just yet. Uh, still very elevated here, but again, that's going to start working here over the course of the next few months. So now the important thing and we're going to talk some more about that this morning as we really get into earnings season here over the course of the next you know, couple of weeks in particular. It's not going to be the earnings that matter. We've already revised earnings down on a lot of fronts. Wall Street's brought their estimates down for this quarter. So we're likely going to see you know, kind of that historic 60-70% of stocks beating the earnings estimates. But the, the important thing is what they say about the future. You know, are they going to be spending more on CapEx? Are they going to be doing acquisitions? Are they going to be laying off employees or hiring employees? What's their outlook for economic growth? What's the outlook for earnings next quarter? That's really going to be the mover for a lot of these stocks. Now, a lot of these stocks have already been pre-announcing, getting some of that bad news out of the way. That's, that's potentially helpful here if we do start to get a rally. Um, you know, that could be a little, a little helpful here in the short term. But again, there's a lot of companies that potentially, because of the stronger dollar, they're internationally focused. So it means 40% of their revenue is exposed to a strong dollar, which 
uh, the stronger the dollar is here, uh, potentially the weaker their international sales are because it's expensive for people to buy stuff overseas and, and then you know get it from us. So again, that has a, a real impact here. So we may see a lot more reports this quarter talking about the strength of the dollar impacting the international sales. Of course, slower economic environment, concerns about inflation and high prices. Most importantly, remember, 70% of the economy is driven by what you and I are out buying and doing, our consumption. So high prices, that leads to less demand. So the outlook for the consumer is going to be really important. And particularly as we start hearing companies over the next couple of weeks, we're heading into Thanksgiving, of course, and then Christmas right around the corner, New Year's. Lots of holidays coming up. What's the outlook for shopping by the consumer? That's going to be a real driver here for stocks like Amazon, Walmart, Target, and others. So, again, a lot of stuff coming down the pipeline. We'll get into some more of that after the break, talk about markets, money, and more right here on The Real Investment Show. Get by the website. Our newsletter is out talking a lot about this. We went through earnings and more this weekend in the newsletter. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Let's go, girls. What do women want when it comes to finances? Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for a special ladies' edition lunch and learn what women need from Social Security. Thursday, October 20th at noon. Get the most out of your Social Security benefits. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next ladies' lunch and learn. What women need from Social Security. Thursday. Thursday, October 20th at noon with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. weekend my daughter came over to, to see me and so my wife and I and, and her we went out to have lunch and we had lunch and we're getting ready to drive back and my wife says of course you know we're renting our house we, we sold our house earlier this year and we're in a, a rental house right now and so we're just kind of chilling out just kind of watching real estate prices you know looking for our, we're, we're looking for our next house eventually right so we're just you know kind of renting for now and then looking for opportunities and so we're driving back and my wife's scrolling on her phone and she says, uh, she says, hey, turn here into this neighborhood. There's a, there's an open house, you know, kind of close to the park. And I'm like, okay. And because uh, we, we like to run, we, you know, every weekend we go out, we run a few miles and take our dogs with us. And so we, we like being close to the park uh, where we are now and, and we enjoy that. So she's kind of looking for a house that's close to a park or a, at least a running trail, something like that. And so she goes, well, there's an open house over here in this neighborhood. Let's go. Let's just run by real quick. And just kind of take a gander at it and just kind of see where we are. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. So she, so she's like, okay, turn here. And so I turn on the street and, and we're driving down this street. And she's like, okay, well, turn here. And so I turn on this other street. We're driving down. I'm like, well, where's this house? She goes, I think it's just right up here. Uh, take a ride on this street over here. And so we took another ride on this other street. And I'm like, babe where's this house at? And she goes, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's running. I'm, I'm, I'm honey, you're looking at the open house on your phone. Just what's the direction? She goes, well, I don't have my glasses. I can't see my phone. 
<laughs> so I had spent like 20 minutes driving around with a blind person giving me directions. <laughs> this is the epitome of navigation gone wrong. I mean, <laughs> so eventually, somehow, magically, I just happened to turn on this one street and we, we saw this open house. And anyway, <laughs> then it took me another 20 minutes to figure my way back out of this neighborhood. Just wait till she starts going deaf. I know, right? <laughs> So anyway, always check your navigator. This is the important thing. When, you're, when your navigator gets in the cockpit, make sure they have their glasses if they need glasses. Anyway, that, my, my, my life is a soap opera. Anyway, um, so just for the break, talking a little bit about the markets here. And again, you know, lots of volatility in the market really kind of just weighing on consumers and, and, and investors in general. And, you know, a couple of things that, you know, are, are kind of all combined with this. Again, you know, the Federal Reserve, um, back in 2010, we have to go back in history here a little bit. In 2009, um, you know, we were coming out of the financial crisis, and this is where the Federal Reserve launched the, the first round of quantitative easing. And this is where... The bank was was buying bonds, or the Federal Reserve was buying bonds from the banks, uh, injecting liquidity in the markets, and everybody was like, "Okay, this is a new thing. We don't know much about it, but okay, fine." Anyways, markets started to recover, right? But of course, along with that, you know, it was hard to point fingers just you know at the quantitative easing program. It was like eight hundred billion dollars. It wasn't huge. But at the same time, the Obama administration was doing HAMP and HARP and cash for clunkers and cash for cars and, I mean, just, you know, cash for appliances. I mean, we were doing all the, we had, uh, you know, the the uh, temporary asset relief program, $800 billion, you know, we got shovel-ready jobs. It turned out they weren't so shovel-ready. Just, you know, just a, just a litany of money thrown at various forms of the economy and the market. And so we didn't think much about QE the first time around. It was like, okay, just part of this whole bailout process. Of course, we're bailing out the banks at this point. But then in, in 2009, so it was a temporary program, right? Quantitative easing was temporary. Started in 2008, went through 2009. So in 2010, it ended in June of 2010, and the markets immediately started selling off. So we were down 15 16% on the markets. I, I, I don't remember exactly the percentage. And in September, Ben Bernanke, 2010, comes out and says, we're launching quantitative easing part two, right? And he made a very specific statement. And this was where the Federal Reserve actually picked up the third mandate. So the the two mandates of the Federal Reserve by charter are price stability and full employment. Well, in 2010, Ben Bernanke added the third mandate, which was jacking up asset prices. And he specifically stated, he said in 2010, now I'm paraphrasing here a little bit because I don't have the quote right in front of me, but basically he said this. He's like, we're doing QE to boost asset prices because a stronger stock market will lead to stronger consumer confidence, which will lead to stronger economic growth. And the theory was is that if we lift asset prices, people will feel better about their financial situation. They'll go out and spend more money. And then that way the economy will grow because 70% of the economy is consumption, right? So it makes complete sense. 
and it worked. Markets recovered almost immediately once we started QE2, rallied into 2011, which was where the program was slated to end the next year, right? So these were one-year programs. They start September, end in June of next year. So the market recovers, and we go into 2011. Of course, that's where we start getting into the, the whole debt ceiling debate issue and downgrading treasuries. Japan has the tsunami, earthquake, nuclear reactor blowout mess, and manufacturing slows down. Of course, you know, and, and the, of course, the Federal Reserve is worried about at this point the fiscal cliff. So in 2012, Ben Bernanke launches another round of quantitative easing to offset the fiscal cliff, right? And which never occurred. So we ran asset prices up. Finally, in 2014, 2015, Janet Yellen's like, okay, we're going to taper off the balance sheet a little bit. Markets kind of struggle for a few months. Then, of course, we shift the whole QE over to, to the ECB. They start their version of, of doing whatever it takes. Markets take off running again. And, and so the point is, is that when we look back over the course of the last 12 years, it's just been one monetary-fueled intervention after another, which has been driving asset prices higher, along with stock buybacks. You know, we've talked about the fact that stock buybacks have made up 40% of the increase in the markets all by themselves. So just, just a, a litany of artificial influences really driving asset prices far beyond what price discovery would have, have, have provided. And that that is what it is. We had these outsized returns. And again, we, we wrote an article on about this recently on our website that if you go back and look at the markets from 1900 to 2000 and, and basically 12, the markets returned on average about 8% a year. About what you would expect. 6% from capital appreciation because that's where the kind of earnings growth was, which was the kind of the growth rate of the economy, plus dividend yields minus inflation. So get you about 8%. Well, since 2009 till present, we've been doing about 12% a year. So all these artificial interventions have lifted returns on average, along with valuations, by a full four percentage points on an annualized basis. So that's, that's a lot. So in other words, stocks have been outgrowing what the economy can generate now for over a decade. And so we're paying and so so now the problem is is that you know, investors are being hit for the first time with a market where the Federal Reserve is not injecting liquidity. We're not holding rates at zero. Everything is now reversed. And, of course, markets are under pressure and have been. And this isn't likely to end soon. Again, the, the Federal Reserve been, has been fairly clear at this point that the risk, their view of risk, is that inflation remains too high for too long and becomes entrenched within the economy. I've argued that point numerous times because the inflation that we have is not a function of solid core economic growth and manufacturing, it was a function of injecting too much liquidity into the markets, which gave us inflation. Supply chains were snarled because of the shutdown, but now there's more and more mounting evidence that those supply chains are coming back online. So again, companies like Amazon having two prime days 
this year to try to get rid of inventory. They had uh, they had two prime days back in the summer and just recently last week had two prime days trying to move inventory. Black Friday is starting in October. Trying to move inventory. Walmart, Target, others, all too much inventory. Too many employees. CEO confidence has dropped to very, very low levels. Layoffs are coming. You know, we're already in the first stages of what will be the unwinding of the employment boom, which was companies beginning to do hiring freezes. Once they do hiring freezes, the next step is I've still got too many employees. I have to start laying off some people. So that's coming. We're just not there yet. So all these things are starting to mount up, right? And the problem that faces the Fed, of course, is, as I, as I said, is consumer confidence, which continues to be weak. High inflation and wages that don't keep up with that rate of inflation only weigh on, on consumer confidence even more. So, you know, we're going to get a real taste, you know, coming up in the next couple of months about just how healthy the household balance sheet really is. And we hear those, we hear those comments all the time. It's like, oh, the household balance sheet, there's all these excess savings in the bank. Uh, when have you ever had too much savings? Right? I don't know, I don't know of any period in my life where I had too much. I'm just I'm looking at my bank account. It's like, you know, I've just got way too much money saved up here. I just need to go spend some. This is just ridiculous. I've got this much money sitting in the bank. What am I thinking about anything here, right? It's complete nonsense. Anyway, we're going to see. And I think what we're going to find out is, is that the economy is actually a good bit weaker than what we currently expect it to be. Anyway, come back. More coming up on The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com let's go girls what do women want when it comes to finances join richard rosso and danny ratliff for a special ladies edition lunch and learn what women need from social security thursday october 20th at noon get the most out of your social security benefits register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next ladies lunch and learn what women need from social Social Security, Thursday, October 20th at noon with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. So in this past weekend's newsletter, if you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, Click on our newsletter link. You can get this weekend's newsletter. While you're there at realinvestmentadvice.com, you can subscribe also right there on the homepage to our daily market commentary that comes out every day, as well as our uh, weekly newsletter that comes out. We also email you one uh, report during the week on Tuesdays as well. So we keep you up to date on the markets, what we're thinking, what we're doing, etc. It's all at realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, but in this weekend's newsletter, I was discussing something that... You know, a lot of people have been getting mad at me about lately. 
because we're not technically in a bear market. Yes, we are. We're down 20%. I get it, right? 20% is a very arbitrary number, right? And, we, and what we've talked about is, is that bull markets and bear markets are defined by change in trend, and we have not done that yet. And there's a couple of differentials between a real bear market. I'm not saying not once, I'm not, I'm not saying one's not coming. It's not there yet. And so there's a couple of differentials between a correction and a bear market. So this is kind of the important thing we were stepping out into in this weekend's newsletter. Um, one thing we noted was the 200 week moving average and you know, if you're driving, don't try to look at your phone. <laughs> Just it's in the newsletter. I'll explain it to you. But if you're watching our live stream right now, we'll put a chart up of this. But the 200 week moving average has been really kind of the support line for the market ever since coming out of the 2008 financial crisis lows. And in fact, the 200 week moving average has been a good long term trend indicator, you know, going back into really the 1950s, 1960s. And, and if you get into the periods where we were in real bear markets, like the 1974 bear market, we violated that 200 week moving average, went deeply below it, came back up to it, ran along it, uh, started the bull market, didn't really violate it again to any great degree until 2000 during the dot com crash, then 2008 during the financial crisis. And we haven't violated it now. And we're very close to that. And today we're going to, today's rally, we're going to bounce right off of it. Um, you know, if we can hold this rally during the day, that'll be the, the question. But that's the thing worth watching, right? And there's also some differentials. Again, what's the difference between a correction and a bear market? In a correction, so you go back to the 80s and the 90s as an example, right? In the 80s and 90s, markets are just running up. Yes, we had the crash of 87, never violated the 200-week moving average. Um, but if you go through that period, you know, you had strong employment growth. You didn't have, you know, bankruptcy soaring and, and those type of things. In real bear markets, that's where you start seeing things like surges in unemployment, bankruptcies, defaults, credit crises, you know, things that break and they break markedly. You know, go, go back to 2001 and two. No, we didn't have a credit crisis, but we had numerous companies evaporating right? Enron, WorldCom, Global Crossing, etc. 2008, yes, it was a financial crisis. We had mortgage companies blowing up, bankruptcies, defaults, soaring unemployment. And we just don't have those things, right? Right? The market's fairly contained. Liquidity's operating at this moment. It's getting, you know, there's certainly risk there, but we haven't gotten to the point to where we're seeing the fracture of the economy that would be associated and would be a consequence of drastically dropping share prices, right? And just, just don't have that yet. And so, you know, we, we were kind of going through this, and there's another indicator here that's also really good. And, you know, when we go back and, and look through history and we say, okay, you know, are we in a bear market or just a correction? Well, right now we're still in a correction because – the 50-week moving average has not crossed below the 200-week moving average. So, you know, we talk about the 50-day, 200-day moving average crossovers and that those typically signal short-term corrections in the markets. We've got that going on for sure right now. 
But we haven't done that on a weekly basis. And in fact, the only times in history where we have done that have been in real bear markets. Dot-com crash, financial crisis, 1973-74. Outside of that, the 50-week moving average has not crossed below the 200-week moving average. Again, not confirming a bear market. Now, it certainly feels like a bear market because this year has sucked. We've had more negative days this year than in any other year going back to 1974. So, yeah, it's just terrible. It doesn't seem like anything's worked. You know, you've got a, a, a bear market in the bond market. You've got a bear market in the stock market. You've got a bear market everywhere you, it feels like, right? I mean, just nothing works. You know, we've got surging inflation, and we were told for years that if you have inflation, you got to own gold. That hasn't worked either. Nothing is working. You know, there's a, a permanent, there's what's called the permanent portfolio. And it's a portfolio of 25% cash, stocks, bonds, and, and gold. Hasn't worked. Had a huge drawdown this year. So it doesn't matter where you are, it hasn't worked. And so that certainly feels like a bear market. Technically and economically, we're not there yet. It's probably coming. And, and that's the important lesson here is that, you know, we have things occurring right now that are starting to suggest that we are going to have a bear market. We're just not there yet. The problem was is that we came into this so deviated above the long-term moving averages. We've had to have this, and I've written, written about this before on our website, is that just to get back to this long-term moving average, we've already had to have a 25% decline in the markets. That's why it feels terrible. But it was because you were so elevated above the long-term moving average, you had to have a big correction just to revert back to it. Now, in a normal environment, had we not just juiced the markets to an extreme in 2020, 2021, that's where all this occurred. We created this huge deviation above the long-term moving averages because of all that liquidity injection you normally wouldn't have had to have this, right? And if we went back to a more normal environment, if we were down 24% this year, we probably would be below the 200-week moving average in a normal environment. But we're not. And so what this is, so what's important here is to understand what your risks are. And there's a lot of people saying, oh, you know, we're almost done with the bear market, it's almost over. Maybe. But if we're technically in a bear market, right, if, if everybody is correct and we are in a bear market, we have a lot more to go because the 50-week moving average is going to cross below the 200-week moving average. Prices will break the 200-week moving average at some point and will deviate below that average to, to a fairly significant degree because that's how markets work. It's called mean reversions. And we're going to have to slop around for a while before we get our feet back underneath this. And again, this is all, all under the assumption that the Federal Reserve does not change course. And that's the big question, right? When does the Fed change course? Because it's, at the end of the day, this is all about liquidity. There's an interesting problem that's surfacing now. We're seeing this over, we talked about this last week, we're seeing this, you know, kind of, problem with the Bank of England and, and liquidity with their pension funds. We have the same problem here in, in the Treasury market. I did a video on this on Thursday talking about the problem that 
is now occurring in the Treasury market because the Federal Reserve, during quantitative easing, buys bonds from banks and then remits the interest payments back to the Treasury Department. But now, because of higher interest rates, there's a negative balance, and the Treasury is having to issue debt to meet the interest payments. So this is a problem. And nobody wants to own bonds right now, right? Pension funds don't want to own them. Stock, you know, uh, uh, banks don't want to own them. Nobody wants to own them because the banks have become dependent upon the Fed to be the marginal buyer. Fed's not buying bonds. They're trying to reduce their balance sheet. So the banks are going, why am I going to buy it? So, you know, we have to go back real quick to what I explained last week, just in case you missed that part of the show. When the, when the Treasury Department wants to issue debt, they sell that to 20 primary dealers. Those are your big major banks. So they have an auction. You hear about the Treasury auctions, right? So this is where the Treasury comes out and says, I've got $5 billion worth of bonds I need to, to, to issue. Who wants to buy them and at what price? And so there's an auction. And depending on how the auction goes, is that's kind of what sets the yield and the price of the bonds and et cetera, right? So that's why you see the interest rate moving up and down on a daily basis as people are trading yields in the markets. Well, before, over the last 12 years, well, let me go back. Prior to 2009, before we started all this intervention nonsense, the Treasury Department issued debt to cover excess spending, right? So the only reason the Treasury Department issues debt is to cover the spending that's not covered by tax revenue. Since it's more than 100 cents of every dollar of tax revenue covers just welfare and interest on the debt, all the other spending has to be done by debt. That's why we now have $31 trillion in accounting and debt, right? So just got to keep issuing debt because we don't have a choice. Prior to 2009, the banks would buy it, sell the bonds off to the individuals, and then that was the end of it. After 2009, the banks had one buyer, the Federal Reserve. So they would buy the bonds, sell it to the Fed. Now the Fed's not buying. The banks are going, I don't want them. Because if the Fed's not buying them, I don't want to go to the trouble to sell them to individuals. So nobody wants the bonds. That's why yields are going up. And the problem for the Treasury, they got nobody to sell to. That's the liquidity problem. Be right back after the break. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com let's go girls what do women want when it comes to finances join richard rosso and danny ratliff for a special ladies edition lunch and learn what women need from social security thursday october 20th at noon get the most out of your social security benefits register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our next ladies lunch and learn what women need from social security thursday October 20th at noon with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
So, um, over the weekend, I caught a little bit of this uh, new criminal uh, thriller called Emily the Criminal, right? So basically, it's a story about this girl that's, uh, and I'm not going to ruin it for you because there's, but there's an underlying tone to this, which is, I think, just kind of ridiculous. Kind of sends the wrong message, in my opinion. Emily the criminal, she's, you know, struggling to make ends meet, right? She's working this crappy part-time job, you know, working at a restaurant and waiting tables and stuff. And anyway, so she starts going into credit card scams. And... The underlying premise of all this is that she's got student loan debt. And so she's being forced to be a criminal to pay off her student loans. It's terrible. And what kind of message are you sending people, right? We've already told, we've already told all these people they have to go to college to get a degree. So they need to take out the student loan debt. We didn't tell them they had to go get a, a real degree, right? Just a degree, right? This is the problem. I was, uh, my daughter's, uh, you know, trying to, she goes to Texas Tech. She's trying to figure out her degree, right? And so having her talk to people and saying, look, you know, as you start trying to figure out your degree, go talk to people. Say, look, if I get a degree in this, you know, can I get a job? And so she kind of found a degree she liked in the oil and gas industry. And she's, and she, you know, I said, okay, well, that's fine. Go talk to this person over here and tell them what degree you want to have and let them tell you what they think. And so she did that. And, and the response was, is, yeah, we would hire you with that degree. Now, if you come in here with a philosophy degree, sociology degree, basket weaving degree, we're not going to hire you. With that degree, we'll hire you because that's got a functional aspect to it. Good. Okay. And I said, there you go. Now you can go proceed on your way. You know, and, and but this is the, but what this, this show tells you is, is that, you know, well, if you can't pay your student loans, then you have to resort to a life of crime, right? And I don't think that's exactly the message that we should be sending to people because, A, nobody forced you into this, this whole student loan debt problem we've talked about before. Nobody forced you into it. Nobody held a gun to your head and said, you have to take out the student loan, right? And it's interesting because the guy that produced the movie, right, they were interviewing him, and the reason that he wrote this movie is because, and this is why I think it's funny, right, is because he had student loan debt, and he struggled with his student loan debt, and that's what led him to write this movie, right? His name's John Patton Ford. This is his name. And, he, and this is a quote from the article. I think fear is a great motivator of human beings. We do nearly everything out of fear. The only reason that anyone would do, would do what she does is because, because she's, she's being a criminal is because they're horribly afraid of the consequences of not doing them. So let me think about that for just a moment. I'm afraid of not being pay, able to pay off my student loan debt, so my fear motivator is to become a criminal so I can go to prison for the rest of my life. Now, the consequences of not paying off my student loans, bankruptcy, I have to start over with my life, but I can't discharge my student loans under bankruptcy, right? But I have a lot of other debt I got to deal with. 
I don't go to prison for not paying off my student loans. So I don't think fear in terms of paying off my student loans is a great motivator. <laughs> fear of going to prison is a really good motivator. But again, this is just a fictional movie, but this is his point. And it, and it is true. We do, we do a lot of things out of fear, right? You know, there's, uh, you know, kind of the, what my psychology professor once told me is like there's the four F's which are the basis of human nature, which is feed, flee, fear, and have offspring, right? Those are the four Fs. And those are your basic, you know, motivators in life, right? So, you know, so he's got a point, right? Fear is an important motivator, but I'm not sure that student loan debt is, is fearful enough to force me into a life of crime, but that's the motivator of the story. But here's the point about this. He paid off his student loans. He says, um, as he's talking about this, you know, he goes, it was my personal experience. I went to the American Film Institute in Los Angeles, graduated in 2009, had $93,000 in debt. Every decision I made came down to my student loan debt. This is according to him. You know, can I fly home this weekend? Can I afford to, you know, uh, get coffee with a friend? You know, it pretty much ran my whole life. And I knew I wasn't alone in this crisis. There are tens of millions of Americans who are dealing with this every day. Yeah, and most of them are paying off their loans, just like John Patton Ford did. He paid off all of his loans because... He, they ask him, he says, have you paid off your loans? And he's like, oh, I don't have debt any longer. It, it, I got a job as a screenwriting career. Um, and there are about as many people in the Writers Guild of America as there are in Major League Baseball players. So, again, you know, he has become, you know, got into more and more elite statuses, right? So he's in the Guild Writers College. He's, he's making a, a, a fine living, which is why he spent $93,000 on student loans so that he could get the degree that he needed to get to where he wanted to go. So he followed the process. Yes, it was tough up front, you know, coming out of college. Nobody guarantees you coming out of college you're going to make, you know, $500,000 a year and be able to immediately pay off your student loan. Yeah, you're going to have to deal with your debt for a while, but that's why you got in debt in the first place was to get the degree to get you to the point that you were making substantial money, then you pay off your loans. But somehow we've gotten to this point, it's like, we just don't want the burden, right? If you don't want the burden of student loan debt, don't take it out. Don't go to college. Go, go get a trade degree. Go, you know, go be an apprentice. Learn to be an electrician, you know, plumber, whatever it is. And you don't have student loans. But if you want the track to become an engineer, a doctor, whatever, you got, he actually even talked about this. He talked about his sister. <laughs> My sister went to medical school. She's an anesthesiologist. Do you know how much money anesthesiologists make every year, by the way? It's bank. My daughter's talking about being an anesthesiologist. My younger daughter is talking about being an anesthesiologist. She's like, it's a pretty cool job. I just inject people with drugs and get paid a lot of money. I'm like, you got it. My sister's an anesthesiologist. She's been working for like 15 years now. She's still paying off her student debt. <laughs> okay. And when she gets it paid off, trust me, she'll be making plenty of money. Unless she's a really crappy anesthesiologist, right? <laughs> but if you're halfway decent, 
you make a lot of money being an anesthesiologist. She'll be just fine. But again, she has student loan debt that she's paying off. Why does she have student loan debt? Because she wanted to be an anesthesiologist, which will pay huge dividends down the road. We all have to make an investment into what we want in the future, and we have to pay that investment back. It doesn't matter whether you paid that investment out of your pocket or whether you borrowed the money to make the investment. That's how, that's how businesses are made every day. You want to start a business, you, you either get an investor, and a lot of, unless you just happen to have a lot of capital in your pocket, you go get a group of investors to invest in your business, or you go borrow the money to do it. But again, somebody somewhere is making that investment into that future. It just doesn't happen for free, but somewhere we've, we've obfuscated this whole idea that we just don't have to have responsibility for our actions. And we don't want the responsibility for the money that we borrowed so that we could have a better future. Right? I'm going to take money from Brent. I'm going to build a better future for myself and then not pay him back. How is that even equitable on any level? But somehow we, we want to make this okay. And so this movie, Emily the Criminal, tries to justify her actions of being a criminal because she's saddled with this terrible amount of student loan debt. Of which, apparently, she was unwilling or unable to monetize that education into a future. Because in the film, Aubrey Plaza is always in a state of fear. There are moments in Emily's dread life that after one of her successful heists, when she's painting her apartment to classical music and when she's falling in love with Yusef, who has introduced her to the world of credit card fraud, these reprieves are always brief and soon the fear is back. Why? I've got to go do another heist to pay my student loan. It's just moronic. But this is the message we want to send to people, right? We send this message out, it's like, yeah, I completely, I get it, right? I'm a young kid sitting around, I've got student loan debt. It's like, yeah, Emily, go, go pull off a credit card heist. Go get those bad guys. The paltry wages from her food delivery job barely allow her to keep up with the interest accumulating on her student loan debt. Okay, what was your degree in and why are you doing food delivery? That's the question, <laughs> right? That's what we should be asking is why aren't you moving forward in life? Why are you doing food delivery? I mean, if you're obviously creative enough to do credit card heist, use your powers of evil for good. <laughs> anyway, just stuff drives me crazy. All right, wraps up the show for today. All right, we'll be back uh, tomorrow. Uh, this morning, markets are looking to open up about 340 on the down. NASDAQ up about 158 points right now. Bitcoin trading higher, heading up to about, head, trying to head back towards 20,000. See if it can get there. Uh, in the meantime, three minutes of markets and money are coming up. Be sure and get by and read our newsletter this weekend. We go through this whole thing about a bear market, what we need to see to have a bottom in the market. That is all in the newsletter this weekend. Simply go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Click on the newsletter link. It's right there. And it's free. Then since your questions, let's know what we can do for you. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow.